we had uh, uh, changed the time or the Sunday for the next love feast in December. I had told the Dickens that it should be on the, the second Sunday, December the 11th, but now it wouldn't be. It will be December 4th, the first Sunday, first Sunday. This is because of availability of the space that we use and all the other things that you probably could get. Anyway, so we will have our love feast on the first Sunday of December. Now the other thing before I even get started is usually uh, I don't have time to browse the internet or whatever. I don't have that kind of time. But thankfully there are those who do. I'm going to see some interesting things that get my attention. And so it was brought to my attention this week and referred to an article. The article says the word in quote homosexual is in the Bible by mistake. The explosive documentary that is under attack. That's the title. And I read through it. And one of the things that came to my mind immediately, beside all other things, I said, hmm, this is why I don't suppose any of you will remember it. Maybe you will, but I don't think so. But at least you have that mindset. When we started, the only passage where that word homosexual is used in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. And we started it. If you want to review it, go back to lesson 174 of 1 Corinthians. Now what, what I did is, I did explain to you that the word homosexual offenders is really not the actual translation because the Greek indicates from what the lexicons tell us that it refers to a male that plays a dominant role in homosexual relationship and or you know one who practices intercourse with a boy so that I remember telling you that the standard Greek lexicon suggests that the word may be translated pederasta pederasta and so if you can check on the note online if you already have it or you can go back and see so it caused me to say well this is, this is one of those reasons we do war study because this is a documentary it's going to hit I don't know when it's going to come up uh, it's, it's going to be a movie or a, fa- a film as they say the second thing that caught my attention is this how Satan can use people in order to cause more deception. Let's say that those who in 1946 they mistranslated the Greek word and used the word homosexual. Now what's a homosexual? A man who has sex with another man or a woman who has sex with another woman. Does the concept change? Not at all. 
Because throughout the Bible it's here. The Bible speaks against it. But what they're causing is because the word homosexual is used by politicians and blah, blah, blah to cause trouble for the, uh, the whatever they call them, LGBT, whatever they call them. And they're causing them problem. Now the interesting thing to me is this. Can you see? It's just because of the name. But they never talked about the actual thing that the Bible condemns. So you can see, one, that the enemy is very shrewd. So if, if the focus, when that comes up, whatever it, it does come up, I hope we'll talk about is it wasn't, oh, look at, they mistranslated the Bible. I mean, it's the same place, you know, they argue the smarter things. But my point, though, is it is important that those of us who are pastors should teach and use word study. Because if nothing else, we come uh, realize that there are some translations that are suspect. And that doesn't change the concept. Like in this case, where it appeared in 1946 for the first time, which is true. But so what? It doesn't change the concept that the Bible says man having sex with man is an abomination. It's the same before him and vice versa. So what's the point? But if you're going to, if they succeed, as I understood, a documentary that's going to come out in a film in a very short time. If that comes up, you just know how smart the enemy does things. Let's pray. I have only Father, we are thankful this morning for your love, for your mercy, and for your kindness. An awesome God, majestic in all your ways, we cannot fathom your goodness, your love, your power. Everything about you is beyond our human comprehension. But we thank you for the little that we can understand that will cause us to join the elect in heaven to say, the all glory, honor, dominion and power belong to you, for you deserve them. All has become the wonderment that you will give us this privilege to be called your children. And so, as we have gathered this morning, we do so in obedience to your instruction that we should Assemble ourselves for the purpose of an encourage as we see the evil days draw near. So we recognize that we are in tumultuous time. So we pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will enable us to hear precisely what, we, what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We are still in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 to 13. First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 5 through 13. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. Say these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warning for us. On whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now recall the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 5 through 13 that we uh, have been studying is that the enjoyment of God's blessings under a good spiritual leadership or spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. Now we stated previously that there are three primary reasons for presenting the message of this section the way we did. The first reason that we considered in detail is that the Holy Spirit conveyed to us through Apostle Paul that the death of the majority of the Israelites in the desert was because of God's displeasure with them. A second reason is that the death in the desert of most of the Israelites that left Egypt is to dissuade us from evil desires that we indicated is the concern of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 6 through 10. Now consequently, we consider four examples of the kinds of evil desires that some of the Israelites who died in the desert were involved that we should avoid. Record that these were idolatry, sexual immorality, putting God to the test, and grumbling. Now the third reason is because Israel's experience in the desert is written down for us as example and warning. Now this reason we stated is derived then from the first sentence of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 that says these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warning for us. We also noted that we are privileged to live in the last days of the outworking of God's plan with examples that have been written down regarding God's reaction to idolatry, sexual immorality, testing him and grumbling. The point is this, it's a blessing, although most, of, most people ignore that, it's a blessing if you can have an example before you of what you shouldn't do or what you should do. That's a, it's a good example, uh, blessing. Now, this is why I talked about parents. Uh, parents, normally they are the examples. And most of them, it doesn't mean that they will tell their children how they messed up growing up. It's not necessary. But they will just say, yeah, we messed up. They don't need to know all the details. But look at what happened to us when we did that. And that will be as an example to say to a child, yeah, avoid that. Because um, therefore the grace of God, they won't pay you attention anyway. <laughs> they just do whatever they think. Until they get, they get the same point and suffer the same consequences. And then it'll be too late. Anyway, we should also, we also noted though, that this privilege means that uh, as far as we are concerned, that it is something that we should pay close attention. So, we ended our last study last week with the exhortation that we should seize the privilege 
We have to live in a way that is glorifying to the Lord and avoids the displeasure of God or his judgment. It is then with this exhortation that we continue our study this morning in verse 12. Now privilege, whether physical or spiritual, has the tendency to create arrogance in us as humans. You see, you can see this uh, really <clears throat> easily among those who have physical privileges. Since some of these individuals are the most arrogant and abusive people on the planet. In effect, there are those with material or physical privileges that cause them to look down on others or mistreat them. For example, if a person belongs to a wealthy family, there is a tendency to look down on those who are not, or even to think that the others are lazy because they do not have as much wealth as themselves. Of course, such thinking is because those with the kind of privilege do not recognize that whatever they have is from God. And so, they should not be arrogant, as that is what the Holy Spirit has stated through Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Again, it reads, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So when I say it, that privilege, especially physical privileges, lead to those with those uh, privileges to abuse others. I'm not only thinking of what happens in our world today, but that such is really that which characterizes humans on this planet. The scripture provides us examples of those who use their privileges or their privileged position to mistreat others. A good example that may surprise you is King David. King David. As great as he was. Now how, he, how is that you may ask? It is through his mistreatment of Uriah. Now David committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband because of his privileged position as we may gather from Second Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 4. Second Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 4. It reads, In the spring, 
at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. Now see, it does not appear that this incident of sexual sin of David mentioned here is because of his privileged position. But it was. Now you see, no man in Israel at that time would have seen a naked woman bathing and sent for her to come to him for sexual intercourse. Now, bear in mind, uh, when people read this, they think, it's so far-fetched. But if you recall some of you who are at least over 20-something years in this country, you remember. Many years ago, some of the governors, one or two of them, you know, they procured women to state troopers because of their privileged power, uh, position of power. So what David is doing, or what he did, is not something you say, hey, it doesn't happen. It does happen. It just that people cover it up. Anyway, so David did this because of his privileged position of power as king of Israel. So, it is because of his privileged position that he was arrogant to be confident that the woman would not reject having sex with him. It was his privileged position that caused him not only to have sex with Bathsheba, but to arrange for the death of the husband in the battlefield to cover up his track. So you see, his privilege. That's what caused that. Another example of someone that in arrogance used his privileged position to mistreat another person was King Ahab. It was because of his privileged position that he not only felt the need to ask for neighbors uh, uh, to give him his ancestral inheritance, but he indeed took possession of neighbors' uh, neighbors' uh, vineyard after his wife Jezebel arranged for his death as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. 
First Kings 21 verse 15 reads, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take the possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Elishabite. Go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the same place where dogs licked up neighbor's uh, blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Now, it is true that uh, Ahab did not uh, personally arrange for the death of Naboth, but the whole incident would not have occurred if he had not felt entitled to a man's property because of his privileged position as king of Israel. And he did take possession of it, and actually the, when it comes down to it, the same spot was exactly many years later, where after removing him from battlefield where he died, they, they washed off the blood from his chariot, so to say. The same spot. Fulfilling God's word. Now, because this is one of those things I always remind us. We can't always tell what happened. If I'm suffering certain things, you can't always tell why, why I'm suffering. You cannot always assume, you know, it is this or that. The person who is suffering should know. Because I'm sure when people uh, saw this happen, uh, Ahab, his blood being washed there, some people say, oh, that's, that's a strange thing to do for a king. And so they won't remember, they won't even know that there's something he did. In the same way with you, all of us. Sometimes we may look at the person and say, this person is suffering this and suffering that. We just don't know why you are suffering or why I'm suffering. Because you may think, uh, you know, I know this person, he, he or she lives wonderfully. Yes. But do you know the person 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Do you know the person? So, as we have studied, it is not when we sow that we reap it. God knows exactly when we reap it. So when you when see these things, one of the things you have to remember is God keeps a record, not man. He keeps a record for the purpose of fulfilling his word. That is, we reap what we sow. So of course, Naboth uh, was killed because he was defenseless. The man who killed him had a privileged position. So that's what, what we were saying, that privileged position causes people to be arrogant and mistreat others. Now we have used examples of privileged 
or privilege in a physical realm, that can lead to arrogant mistreatment of others. But spiritual privilege also creates arrogance. Now this might surprise you too. Now this was the case with Israel. Apostle Paul tells us of Israel's privileged position as we read in Romans chapter 9 verses 4 and 5. Romans chapter 9 verses 4 and 5. It reads, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons, as a privilege. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So Israel recognized their uh, privileged position as God's covenant people. Otherwise, the apostle would not have written about their privileges as God's covenant people. It's also because uh, Israelites were aware of their privileged position that created arrogance in them. That caused them to think, oh yeah, we're covered. Because we belong to Abraham. So that caused uh, John the Baptist to write what is recorded in Luke chapter 3 verse 8. Luke. And hold on to Luke. Luke chapter 3 verse 8. It reads, Produce fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. See, that, that's a, that arrogant privilege. For I tell you, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now the sentence, We have Abraham as our father, Indicates that the Israelites were aware of their spiritual privilege that caused arrogance in some of them. So the point is that privilege may create arrogance on the part of the privilege that could cause the person to mistreat others or to look down on them. Of course, with privilege, comes great responsibility as the Lord stated as recorded for us still in Luke. Look at the 12th chapter, verses 47 and 48. Now as we are looking at this, I mean you just have to look around you. There are a whole lot of people in this country who because of their privileged position, misbehave. And people give them a pass. Because they're privileged. You know, everywhere you look at it, they are right. 
a whole lot. Those on the lamplight, but they will give them a pass. Here's what, what privilege does, though. This right way is this. He said, that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, simply put, privilege demands great, greater responsibility. The more you are privileged, the more you are responsibility before God. Now this being the case, those with spiritual privilege should be careful to ensure that they meet the expectation of their privilege. Now I have been speaking on privilege and so you may wonder how that is related to the passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 that was studying. Let me read that to you again. He said, say, so, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now that, we are about to consider that. So, somebody may say, where in this sentence is the concept of privilege given? You may ask that. Where? Look at the sentence again. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. You say, how do you come out with privilege there? I don't see it. Yes. Well, it is really there. This is one of those things that we have to do in studying the Bible. That's why it's not something that we just brush through and get ready 40 minutes before they go preach. They, they are ready to go preach whatever it is they're preaching. Now really, it's because of the word so. That's how I get the whole thing about privilege. And I'm going to explain that. The word so. Again, you may say, now, I still don't see it. So let me show you how the word soul conveyed the concept of privilege. So the word soul is translated from a Greek word that may be translated for this reason or therefore. For this reason or therefore. Now, using the meaning for this reason begs then the question of what reason the apostle had in mind. Because he said, for this reason, if you think. So the question is, what reasons is he talking about? That's where I got the answer. So the apostle, the reason the apostle had in mind involves what he has written in the preceding verses, especially verse 11. Now the apostle had indicated that the experience or experiences of the Israelites that died in the desert have been written down to warn us about being careful not to repeat their failures. Furthermore, the apostle indicated that we have privileged position as believers who live in the last days that have written information 
of God's response to Israel's failures in the desert. So you see, he's talking about, he said, well, you have this privileged position because of the time you live in. Now, so, you also have this privileged position that you have examples. So based on these two references then, the apostle issued the warning that comes next. So for these reasons, or for these reasons means for the fact that you are living in a privileged time, for the fact that you have example. When you put those together, that's, that's how I got the concept of privileged. Before I expanded on privilege. So we are saying then that the written experiences of the Israelites who died in desert have placed us in a privileged position in that we know with certainty God's reaction to failures of his people when they displease him. It is based on this privileged position that we have that the apostle issued the warning in verse 12. Now, truly speaking, we are such privileged people. Now, see the whole world, they are in a kind of chaos. People are panicking because of whatever it is. People are not at ease. They lack peace. But we are privileged. Those of us who are believers in Christ, who have the word of God, if we live by what we hear from the word of God, we will have this inner peace. I mean, we live really in a bubble. Sure, there are things going around us, but we live in a bubble because of the privilege. If we actually apply what we learn, the things around us will not touch us. And we hear about them, we know about them, but we don't, since we're not in the world, in the sense of being of it, so that we are occupied with it, the world, whatever it is that's going around the, the world, it don't face us, it don't concern us. Because we know we're in a privileged class of those who have relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who should be heavenly minded. Those who should not be thinking about this world but more than we think about our heavenly citizenship. So the one, the apostle, states next then, concerns being careful not to become slack in the spiritual life because we are in privileged position that may lead us to assume that we are doing well spiritually. So this warning is introduced in the NIV in the clause of 1 Corinthians 10, 12 that we're starting. And we say, if you think you are standing firm, if you think you are standing firm. Now most of our English versions did not use the word if in their translation since the Greek simply, this is where the Greek reads, the one thinking he stands. The one thinking he stands. Now this is because the apostle used a present participle in the Greek that requires us to understand he was describing a person with a certain kind of thought expressed in the verse as reflected in majority of our English versions. For example, the New English translation reads this way. 
One who thinks he is standing. One who thinks he is standing. The English Standard Version reads this way. Anyone who thinks that he stands. So however, a handful of English versions such as the NIV take the view that there is uncertainty as to whether the apostle was concerned with someone that is guilty of the kind of thought he states. So, they introduce that element of uncertainty using the word if. If. Now, although it is possible to interpret the Greek participle as in the NIV, the Greek grammar requires us to recognize that apostle was thinking in a general way of an individual that was indeed guilty of the thought process he stated literally when he said the one thinking his stance or in the words of the NIV if you think you are standing firm now the word think using our verse of study is translated from a Greek word that may mean to consider as probable so the word may mean something like to think, to suppose, to believe, or even to consider. As it is used to describe what is expected of one who believes or is convinced of being religious. As we read in James chapter 1 verse 26. James chapter 1 verse 26. James chapter 1 verse 26 reads If anyone considers himself religious That's a Greek word Here it's translated considers If anyone considers himself religious And yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue In other words If you consider yourself religious but you have, you're the one that just bite a lot, you talk too much, so that you say what you don't, you know, so kinds of things that you don't even remember what you said. If you're that kind of person, he says that something is not quite right. So that's why I say he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. So you neutralize whatever you claim if you have a loose tongue. Now the word may mean, to appear to one's understanding hence means something like to seem, to seem. As Apostle Paul used it to indicate how uh, he does not want to appear to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 9. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 9 reads, I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. That word seem is the same uh, Greek word translated think in our uh, passage of study. So in our passage then of 1 Corinthians 10 12, the word has the sense of really to suppose, to suppose. That's of course to think or to believe without being fully settled in mind or opinion. 
Now the use of the word thing then, in the clause of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, again it says, If you think you are standing firm, that use of the word thing should teach us of the important truth that our thoughts affect us either negatively or positively. In that they can create arrogance or humility in us. What we think and how we think or whatever it is can create arrogance or humility. Our thoughts affect our actions. Now there is an interesting example in the Old Testament scripture that illustrates the fact that our thoughts affect how we act. There are many, but this one is one I find very intriguing. Now Israel had defeated the king of Aram and his army, but their defeat was attributed to their belief that God of Israel was in their mind God of the hills. As we read in First Kings chapter 20 verse 23. First Kings I hold on to uh, First Kings. Pick up some verses there. First Kings, chapter ten, verse twenty-three reads: Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, "Their gods are gods of the hills." That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we'll be stronger than they. See, that's their thinking. They thought the God of Israel is God of the hills, but not the God of the valleys or the plain. It's a thought. See, what next, what happens? is because of this thought that the Arameans, under their king, regrouped. To attack Israel sometimes later, as we read still in that first Kings twenty. Look at verse twenty six through twenty seven. Verse twenty six reads The next spring Ben Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Afek. To fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered. And given provisions. They marched out to meet them. The Israelites camp. Opposite them like. Two small flocks of goats. While the Arameans covered the countryside. In other words. The army of the Arameans. Outnumbered them. That's really the implication. Well the Lord. Revealed to his prophet that the Arameans would attack Israel because of their thought about God of Israel. Look at verse 28. Same first Kings 20. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says then, the man of God, uh, the man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills. 
and not a God of the valleys. I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. See the Arabians later they were later on defeated because they thought the God of Israel was a God of the hills and not of the valleys. Now you see if they did not have this thought they probably would have not attacked Israel when they did. In other words they lick their womb for the false defeat and just go home. You know? Their thinking is oh the reason. This is, see that's one of those things we humans find ourselves. Even believers. That when things happen to us we find a way to rationalize it that has nothing to do with God. We remove God really. And that is what they were doing. In their, in their mind. They, they belittled the God of Israel. The supreme God. So when people begin to say, well, you know, instead of take a hard look at what is going on, people say, well, no, it's because the final one, they say, well, I just ran out of luck, really. You know, that's, that's the way they go about it. Instead of looking hard and see what is going on with them spiritually and see if they can figure out the cause. Anyway, my point is that our thoughts affect our actions. The way you think affects what you do. It's a simple truth, but that's a fact that we don't always think about. It is because our thoughts affect our conduct that we are commanded to have the positive thoughts that will affect our conduct as we are commanded in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 reads, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So, your thoughts. Look at the kind of thing you say, think about. Think about this thing. So, it is because our thoughts then affect our conduct that we are instructed to have proper evaluation of ourselves instead of evaluating ourselves more than reality permits, as we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Romans Romans chapter 12 verse 3 Romans chapter 12 verse 3 reads For by the grace given me I say to every one of you Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought but rather 
Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So anyway, it is important we have accurate or proper evaluation of ourselves to keep us humble and away from pride and deception. Since when a person over evaluates self, that person will be in self-deception as the Holy Spirit informs us through Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 verse 3. Now self-deception is very easy and we can get into it and things get worse for us if we have people commending us. And that will cause us not to see how we are in self-deception. Galatians 6 verse 3 tells us that. It says, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing. In other words, you are not evaluating yourself properly. Then look at what he says. He deceives himself. He deceives himself. So the reality, the same reality that we are capable of self-deception is found in Apostle Paul's uh, caution given in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 2. First Corinthians chapter eight verse two. First Corinthians chapter eight verse two reads The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. So be that then as he may, it is in part because we are capable of self deception that we have the clause of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 that we are studying that says again, if you think you are standing firm. The sentence you are standing firm is translated from a Greek word, all one word in Greek, that may mean to literally stand up upon someone's feet as an instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ to Paul at the point of his conversion, as by his testimony in Acts chapter 26, verse 16. Acts Acts chapter 26, verse 16. It reads, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Now the Greek word may mean to validate something that's in force or in practice. So it may mean something like to uphold or to maintain as it is used regarding the law in Romans chapter 3 verse 31 Romans chapter 3 verse 31 I hold on to Romans here it says 
Do we then nullify the law by, by his, this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold. That's a Greek word that means standing. Yes, translate uphold. We uphold the law. Now the Greek word can mean to stand firm so as to remain stable. Hence means something like to stand firm or to hold someone's crown. As it is used in Romans chapter 14 verse 4. Romans chapter 14 verse 4. It is, why I, who are you to judge somewhere else servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now the first stand here, in, in this passage, is to be understood to mean to stand firm, or to hold one's crown. Now, although the entire clause, uh, to his own master, he stands or falls, probably meant whether one maintains one's status or relationship to a master depends on the master's judgment or evaluation. Now, the word may mean to stand firm in belief, to stand firm in belief, or to stand firm of personal commitment as the word is used by Apostle Paul to commend the Corinthians so to say of standing firm in in what they believe not because he and his team are their lords so to say or or have control uh, or controlling power over them but because of their faith in God, as we read in Second Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-four. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-four. It is not that we lord it over your faith, but we walk with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. So it is in the sense of to stand firm of what one believes. That the Greek word is used in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. So the meaning of the Greek word translated, you are standing firm, enables us then to know what it is that one is claiming. The believer who is Presumably, in self-deception, claims to be committed to the Christian faith. That is to say that the person assumes to be fully committed to Christ and his word. So that there is no possibility of failing spiritually in a way that will be disastrous to the individual. Now in the context, the apostle probably was thinking of those who claimed to have knowledge that he mentioned in 1 Corinthians 8.10 that have become arrogant as those he described as being puffed up with knowledge 
in 1 Corinthians 8.1 who think that they could go to the temples of the idols and not be affected by what takes place there. Now this kind of claim of some in Corinth is one that is likely to be found among those who attend Bible teaching local churches or those who go to church regularly and never meet as I've been sick or been mandated to work. Now those who regularly attend Bible class or church may easily think that they are committed to Christ because of their faithful attendance to where Christ is worshipped or where he's uh, or where he's supposed, of course, to be worshipped through the study of the Word of God. So when a person is in that kind of uh, environment, the individual then is like Apostle Peter. Prior to his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, in his human arrogance, believed that he stood firm in his loyalty or commitment to Christ. That when the Lord Jesus informed his disciples, they would deny him when he would be arrested. Peter did not think that that was possible, as we learn from the interaction between him and the Lord. The Lord, Jesus announced his, den- uh, uh, his denial by the disciples, as we read in Matthew chapter uh, 26, verses 31 and 32. And hold on to that Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Look at verse 31 reads. Then Jesus told them. This very night. You will all fall away. On account of me. For it is written. I will strike the shepherd. And the sheep of the rock will be scattered. But after I have risen. I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now because Peter has been with the Lord throughout his earthly ministry, thought his commitment to the Lord was unwavering as he stated by claiming he would not deny the Lord even if other disciples did. As we look at the next verse, verse 33, Matthew 26, look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, Peter replied, even if all Fall away on account of you. I never will. Now the Lord responded of course to Peter's statement by being more specific. Concerning his denial of his master. Look at the next verse. Verse 24 says, I mean verse 34. Matthew 26, 34 says, I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows you will disown me three times. See, Peter, still convinced he was committed to the Lord. That is, that he was standing firm in his belief and so not capable of failing by denying his faith 
in the Son of God that he uttered what is recorded still in that Matthew 26. Look at the next verse, verse 35. It reads, But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now the gospel, of course, uh, records, the gospel records indicate that the Lord was correct, which Peter shouldn't have argued with, that Peter denied the Lord as he told him he would. He did. So Peter's arrogance of thinking, he stood firm in his belief in the Son of God, was due to his continued acquaintance with the Lord during his earthly ministry. Peter, practically, went everywhere with the Lord. In fact, he was among the inner circle of the Lord Jesus while on this planet, as indicated by the Lord taking him along in special occasions. In the transfiguration experience of the Lord, he took Peter with him along with James and John, as we read in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Matthew 17, verse 1. Uh, looking at time, it's time for break. After break, we'll read that.